Good morning, everyone. I just want to start off by introducing myself. My name is Edo Walker. I'm a senior philosophy major from Minneapolis, Minnesota, North Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and I attend Morehouse College in sunny Atlanta, Georgia. So I'll be... <laughs> Thank you. So I'll be introducing our panelists today. You know the speakers. But uh, first, I just wanted to give a few words and you know, give you my take on the, uh, the series, the documentary. Sorry I don't have uh, anything to hide on my phone. I know it's a little unprofessional, but we'll make it, we'll make it work. So um, first, I want to thank the Minneapolis Foundation and Ms. Shonda Smith-Baker on being an active and brave leader in the conversation of change for giving me the platform to represent my community, my institution, my family, and myself. And to introduce a compelling and historic leader in Dr. Yusuf Salam. When They See Us tells the story of five young men who were wrongfully convicted of a, of a crime and were casualties in, it, in an attempt to push a false narrative of young black men as dangerous and a threat to the greater society. The series speaks to the justice system, police brutality, prejudice, racism, and the lack and disadvantages of impoverished communities. Like many of us, the series saddened and upset me when I first seen it because of the injustices, of course, but it was more for me. As a young black man born and raised in North Minneapolis, I thought about how this could have been me, a close friend, or a distant stranger in my community or in any community. The story of the exonerated five is not exclusive to a time period. These injustices are currently taking place and happening far too often. A black prisoner is three and a half times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of sexual assault, two times more likely for murder, and 12 times more likely for a drug-related crime. Justice reform is a serious matter in our communities, and it is important we recognize the disparities in order to change them. But on the brighter side of things, some things that stood out to me was the bravery, the camaraderie amongst the young men, and the strength of them throughout the fight for freedom. So I want to say thank you to Dr. Yusuf Salam and the rest of the Exonerated Five for your inescapable but relentless fight for justice. You are heroes for our community, and the world will thank you. You will be an example to look back upon when we search for inspiration. So without further ado, I want to introduce Ms. Shonda Smith-Baker with the Minneapolis Foundation and Impact for doing great work for our communities. And then we have a extensive <laughs> introduction for Dr. Yusuf Salam. In 1989, five teenagers, boys of color, labeled the Central Park Five, were convicted of a rape they did not commit. One of those boys, Yusuf Salam, was just 15 years old. When his life was upended and changed forever, in 2002, after the Central Park Five spent between seven and 13 years of their lives behind bars, their sentence was overturned. Since his release, Yusuf has committed himself to advocating and educating people on the issues of false con convictions, police brutality and misconduct, press et ethics and bias, race and law, and the disparities in the Amer America's justice system. The Central Park Five received a multi-million dollar settlement from the city of New York for its grievous injustice against them. Yusuf was awarded an honorary doctorate that same year and received the President's Lifetime Achievement Award in 20, 
2016 from President Barack Obama. He was appointed to the board of the Innocent Project in 2018 and has released a Netflix feature limited series called When They See Us, based on a true story of the Central Park Five with Ava Duvernay, Oprah Winfrey, Robert De Niro in May of 2019. So introducing to you, Dr. Yusuf Salam. We're going to jump into the conversation, but before um, we do, I'm going to say something. Um, we went to dinner last night, and I said, at some point, I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, and I just didn't know that uh, Ida would make me tear up when I think about uh, the brilliance that live in our communities and um, the injustice that's happening. It's incredibly overwhelming. And I've had some moments of some incredible disappointment when we have collectively have opportunities to stand up and stand for things and we choose to be safe and we choose to be political. The story of these five young men happened in 1989. I was a senior in high school in 1989. I decided I was gonna do math around that. Like I started early, I skipped a grade, like, cause I know you guys are calculating. <laughs> um, so you'll just have to figure out if I actually started early and skipped a grade. <laughs> um, but when I think about what was happening then, I had an uncle, my uncle Richard, who was uh, the chancellor of the New York schools at, the, at that time. And in 1988, he brought us to New York. And if you remember, Lean On Me came out and you saw the schools in that movie. And I thought it was um, a caricature of what a community would look like, the level of, of violence and confusion and things that were happening. But if you remember in that time, it was when the crack epidemic came forward in the strongest way. And it hit New York as it did many of our communities. And there became a war on drugs, which in proxy became a war on brown and black men. That the policies that happened then have exacerbated what has happened in our criminal justice system. And I can only imagine, if you've watched this series, you can see how many careers were made. How many people made career decisions while they were making life decisions on these five black men? I have a 14-year-old at home. I can't even imagine. I don't know if you have a 16-year-old, but when we send 16-year-olds to adult prison in this country, and we don't think about it, the level of racism the systemic challenges that we have, unfortunately, don't just rest in the criminal justice system. When they see us, Eva DuVernay, her story, I heard her talk about why she titled it that way, because she wanted the world to see them. She wanted to discuss 
What do you see when you see black boys? What do you see when you see black men? What happens when you're watching the news? What conclusions do we jump to? What conclusions are happening in our school system? What conclusions are happening for employment decisions? We're in philanthropy, we gotta reach deeper. It is absolutely about making sure that everybody is ready. But they can only be 100% successful if the systems are prepared to deal with them in an equitable way, one that has grace, one that allows for mistakes. When I think about policing in schools, it's upsetting to me. My oldest son, Dominique, when he was 18, a month after he turned 18, I dropped him off at school and I'd give him a, a check for lunch and he is a child that I promise you, he lost the check in the car. How, how, do, you, how do you lose a check in the car? <laughs> I don't know, Trista, but he did it. So I pull off, mom, mom, I can't find the check. I said, well, go, I, I pulled off, make sure my check isn't sitting here in the parking lot. So he goes, I watch him, he picks up a phone. I roll down the window, what did you pick up? Oh, I just found a phone. He runs in, hurry up, because you're gonna be late, because if you know us, we're always right on time or right about on time. And so he runs into his first hour class. He's got his phone here, the phone he found here. 20 minutes later, a police officer comes into his classroom, pulls him out of class. Did you find this phone? Yes, I found the phone. Put him back in class. A few minutes later, police come back. The SIM card's missing. They arrested him, charged him, with the theft of a removable object on a phone that was reported lost, that I watched him find. Three court dates later, he's 18 years old, it's on his record. We make assumptions when we hear about black men with records. And we have failed those that actually have done wrong this is a societal issue that we really need to think very strongly about what kind of community do we want to be? And are we okay with the number of people going to prison? When you look at the difference in the numbers between 1972 and now, it's astounding. When you look at the number of people that have been found innocent on death row, I think it's almost 150 people. It's one in 10 people are found innocent that are sitting on death row right now. Things like the Innocence Project is, is cropping up. The number of people that are sitting in jail on probation violations. My son and I talk a lot about Meek Mills who, who popped a willy in the street that went to jail at 19 years old on a weapons violation where the officer later said he manufactured the evidence. He was fired because he was corrupt he has been on paper his entire adult life. He popped a willy, he did a performance in the city and went back to jail. We're not talking about violent offenders, folks. We are talking about people that are doing minor things that need a minor action. And our economy needs us to be better. 
I don't know where this conversation is gonna go because we are not rehearsed. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that I know where the conversations at the Minneapolis Foundation are gonna go. And we are gonna continue to dive into these topics, into the gritty things that we're talking about, that we're disappointed about, that we feel fine talking about in our communities of comfort. And we need to break out of our silos and share the stories because there's such power in narrative. And there's a narrative about brown and black men and brown and black people. We're watching this play out in real time in our lifetime. We're watching it. There's something else at play here, folks, that we need to really tap into, dig into, and figure out where we go next. So I appreciate you being here. This topic is tough but that's what we're about at the foundation. We wanna get tough about it. We wanna, we wanna build up our collective muscles within that foundation to say, where do we need to go to make the biggest difference in this community? And I appreciate you being part of it with us and we're gonna join in. I believe they're doing questions. Are we? Yes, yes, there's cards. So they're gonna give them to me as I sit up here, so I'm gonna do my best. So if you really want your question asked, um, use your best writing. <laughs> All right. And thank you for letting me go on my emotional uh, soapbox. How are you today? I'm doing well. You're doing well? Yes, First time in Minneapolis? Yes. Beautiful, right? <laughs> it is, actually. You know, I, was, I, was, uh, I asked someone about the weather as I was coming in off of the airport. And I said, wow, it's pretty hot out here. I said, is it always like this? Mm -hmm. And he kind of chuckled, kind of <laughs> like you all are, and said, uh, it was negative 50 last yeah, year. It was. I said, negative 50? How is that possible? You know. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm really um, excited about this uh, conversation. You know, I feel like these conversations are long overdue. This type of information that can push the needle, for lack of a better description, is important. You know, especially when you have um, atrocities that continue to go on in American society, mm -hmm. the greatest country, so to speak, in the world. It could be. Yeah. <laughs> it could be. So, you know, I don't know how many times you've told your story, but, you know, I, I know that I've ran into people that either have watched the four-part series and have expressed their emotion about watching it and the parts that they had to stop, right? Like, like the port, you know, part four, right? Really challenging to watch. And, um, you know, as I was preparing for this, I was very curious on how accurate is that series to what you actually, I mean, I know we just got a glimpse, but how, how close to reality was that series? So, I guess the best way to answer your question is to start off with the experience we had watching it ourselves. So we were in California at the Netflix, you know, main campus, and we were there to watch the series. As a matter of fact, we were only there to watch part one and two. And so as we're watching part one, you know, it's, it's quiet, it's emotional, you begin to hear sniffles, 
And I start sniffling. And I'm like, I'm not crying. I'm like, you know, I'm a grown man, you know? And then I hear others sniffling. And there was an outpouring of emotion that was indescribable. And what happened was we didn't know each other's story. We, we, we kind of assumed that our individual experiences was the collective, especially when it came to Corey. We were like, you know, man, we was all in hell. Part one. Part two. Same thing, wow. You know, we kind of knew the technology that was played on us in order to bring out the false confessions out of the four. And the great thing about it was that the acknowledgement and understanding that we had all been tricked early on really pushed us to be able to be in a different space, a space where we weren't gunning for each other, but rather looking at each other as brothers, as having to go through this. You know, most of the world had thought we knew each other. Like we, we got together one day and said, hey, remember tomorrow, we're we gonna hang out in the park, remember? Come to find out we all met each other in the jail, in the precinct. And then Ava had a brief moment and asked us if we wanted to watch part three. And we were like, shoot, yeah, we wanna watch everything now, you know? And so she said, okay, we're gonna go get some lunch and you know, we'll come back and watch part three. Part, part three started in the same thing, the, the greatness of being able to come home, but then the overwhelming sorrow when you realize that Corey is not there. And I say that because sometimes when folks have watched this film, we get mixed emotions on social media and some of the emotions are angry, which is understandable. Other emotions are very um, happy and, and you know, thankful that we survived this. But when it comes to Corey, we were like all stumbling forward, trying to piece our lives back together. It was as if a person, somebody showed me a description once, and they said, you know, what happens when you tear a person apart, and then they ripped up this piece of paper, and they put it back together? Even though they put tape on it or something like that, that paper was still a ripped piece of paper, physically damaged, probably not worth anything at that moment. And we were all trying to do that, trying to come back, trying to figure out how do we survive in this new reality of you know, being labeled, being pointed at, being described, without us having our own voice. And so part three happened, and similar emotions, you know, we, we, we actually embraced each other after every part, you know, held each other up, thanked each other for being a part of this sacred brotherhood. And then we took a break. And we kind of came back sporadically. And Corey didn't come back yet. I don't know if that was by design or, or not. But if it was, it was brilliant. And Ava said to us, if you need to get something to eat, a snack, a soda, another quick bathroom break, I need you to do that. I do not want you leaving this room while part four 
is on. And we were like, well, shoot, we saw part one, two, and three. I mean, you know, we ready. You know, we was ready. And so we cried through part one and three. When we saw part four, we were wailing. We embraced each other as if we embraced each other for the first time, truly understanding the impact that this had on us. Ava said to me prior to showing it, she said, Yusuf, this is the televised version. And I said, well, you know, in my mind, I didn't say this to her, but in my mind, I'm like, well, shoot, how bad could it be? And then you see it and you realize what she meant. This pumping of new life into this story, a story that they had buried and forgotten about, a story that the system did not want to expose, a story that kind of brought into play the really evil side of what the criminal system of injustice is about. And I say it that way because I want to say the criminal justice system. I want to be able to one day call it that. But the reality is that as we look throughout modern times, I mean, our case was 30 years ago, but folks were just murdered yesterday, the day before, the day before that. It becomes apparent that a person of color is in a position where the whole world fears them and kills them for the assumption of a gun, the assumption of selling cigarettes, the assumption that the young man is uh, a bad man and, and attempting something, and so therefore we just have to pull up and kill him, as in the case of Tamir Rice. This is a war. And after I, I apologized to Corey, because I had, it, it never dawned on me that he had been replaying in his mind over and over again, what if I just didn't go? And just... Um, and I don't know if everybody has seen the, the series, and I don't want to give away too much if you, if you all haven't. Uh, we're giving it all away today. Um, <laughs> um, how many people have seen the series? Okay. Okay, the majority. Okay. How many have not? Maybe I'll ask that. Okay. Okay, so let's, let's talk about Corey. So you and Corey and Kevin yes. lived in the same apartment. So, yes, same building. Same building. But you didn't know Kevin. You knew who he was, but you weren't friends with Kevin. Right. But you were friends with Corey. Yes. And so on... I mean, um, we were enterprising. We were, like, thinking about... You were enterprising. <laughs> black medallions and stuff like that. We were the guys that created that merchandise. Okay. And folks bought it. They wanted it. We came up with new and creative ways to express our blackness. And, and you know, folks wanted that stuff, that culture that you would see around people's necks back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. We designed a lot of that stuff. Wow. I just need to clarify enterprising in the late 80s in New York. I, yeah, need to, yeah. I needed to make sure they knew what she was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're not on the corners, right? No. Okay. So you guys were good guys. Yeah. Um, and, and you and Corey, like, went to each other's apartments. The police come. He's with you. What happens? You know, um, they, so there's a little bit of creative license because Hollywood is, you know, they need to be able to show this in a way that is understandable and, and able to be accepted by the masses. But the actual scene, the actual way that it happened, I was standing in front of my apartment door 
Actually, they were standing in front of my apartment door, and I had turned the corner. They were talking to my brother, and I didn't know this at the time. But the reason why I mention this is because they were trying to get him to put on clothing so he can come downtown with them. Your brother? My brother. He had not even been in the park, didn't know what they were talking about. They were like, well, just come on downtown with us. We just want to talk to you. And then I turned the corner, and I see them, and they, they turn around and look at me. And here I am, 6'2", with a, with a um, triple fat goose on with the fur on the collar. I had the, fur. <laughs> I had the trench coat that had the fur on the collar, you know. It's a, it's a difference, right? Well, there is a difference. <laughs> it's a big difference. It's a difference, I mean. And they looked at me and they said, uh, who are you? And I said, I'm Yusef Salam. And they said, oh, this is one of the guys we've been looking for. And they checked my name off of, the, of a list. And then they looked at Corey. And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Corey Wise. They looked at the list, checked it over twice, and uh, said, you're not, you're not on the list. But you want to come down with town with your buddy, you'll be right back. This is not a mistake in the practice of what they were doing in New York City. This was part of their business as usual, which is the reason why I wanted to paint that picture. Because in the scene, it shows that I'm downstairs and we're kind of we see the cops and we're walking away and they stop me and, you know, that was a way to portray how this happens, how this always happens, you know. And true to form, he came downtown because he was my boy. He was my friend. He was my, my ace in the hole. And in many ways, he always has been my ace in the hole and almost an ace in the hole for the whole five because the beautiful thing about Corey is that his positioning in this puzzle is magnified by the fact that he wasn't supposed to be there and further magnified that he had the stick to survive long enough to become magic in this story, the magic that ultimately freed all of us. I mean, this is, this is a... This is the story, and I just want to, I want to read this real quick, if I can. Real, real short piece. I wrote this, um, as I'm reading it, Ava DuVernay tweets me. <laughs> I tweet something. <laughs> I'm like, wait. She's filling us right Oh, now. man. <laughs> so a little while ago, I said, the Central Park Jogger case is a love story between God and his people. It is a story of a criminal system of injustice turned on its side to produce a modern miracle of how a people can be brought low only to rise because the truth can never stay buried. Of a people buried alive and forgotten, the system forgot we are seeds. And instead of a social death, we emerge like the phoenix from the ashes because as they built the fire to consume us, they forgot the owner of the heat. And I think the... the Like the beauty of it, it's, it's, it's one thing to, like we're fighting, we're, we're in a really serious battle. They said never again with the Scottsboro Boys. And we became the modern day Scottsboro Boys. You know, Donald Trump's full page ad that ran in New York City's newspaper was a nod. 
It, and, and the reason why I say it was a nod, because it was ran two weeks after we were accused. We hadn't even gone to trial yet. And so it was a gearing up of us being tried and convicted in the court of public opinion so that we had no fair opportunity in the real courts. So during yeah. this time, uh, Donald Trump was um, putting out uh, billboards and running full page ads, trying to bring back the death penalty, if I oh, understand yeah. it. Oh yeah. Um, so this is two weeks after you all were picked up. As a matter of fact. Please tell me you don't <laughs> have it. <laughs> I got a copy of it. Bring back the death penalty. Bring back our police. This is the ad that ran in most of New York City's major newspapers. And this, this ad, the reason why I say it was a nod is because just the other day we celebrated, I think it was the 78th birthday of Emmett Lewis Till. This nod was trying to get someone from the darkest enclaves of society to come into our homes, to drag us from our beds, to beat us to death, and basically to do to us what they had done to Emmett Till. As a matter of fact, one of the um, personalities that emerged, well, I mean, he's always there, but he kind of emerged in this, in this narrative was Pat Buchanan. And what Pat Buchanan wrote in the papers was that we should take the eldest one, Corey Wise, and we should hang him from a tree in Central Park. This was written in the papers. We should take him and hang him from a tree in Central Park. We should take the others, strip them, and horsewhip them. And so I, I, I say that because in reference to Emmett Till, a little while ago we found out that his accuser said she's so sorry she made this story up. And I just wondered if, if he had done that, if he had whistled, was his death a proper justice? I mean, you got, I mean, the whole story is just really uh, sickening. Mm -hmm. But this is the, this is, this is, this is what I would say, us wanting the American dream. We are here, some of us have been miseducated to not really truly understand the plight of what it is to be a black person in America. I mean, we, we feel it, but we don't make those connections through slavery and now the new form of slavery through the 13th Amendment. So we want the American dream, but as, as, as so often has been said, we woke up to the American nightmare. I was watching um, Brian Stevenson's latest documentary on HBO, and we'll, we'll put this up on our website if you have an interest in it. And he shares a story in there, and he talks about one of the catalytic moments that led to the bus boycott in Montgomery, um, where we know about Rosa Parks refusing to give up the seat. But one of the, the situations that happened a couple of years before that was a young teenage black boy that had gotten picked up for a rape. Hmm. And he said he didn't do it. They took him to the, the prison. They strapped him up in the electric chair until he confessed. And then they used the confession against him. And then he ultimately was executed and he was not guilty. Wow. And when you think about the way that these things have catalyzed, right? Like Emmett Till, um, his, he has family members that live here. And 
and um, how that the story, both sides, the tragedy and the opportunity, I suppose, that, that comes from it for us to take what might be normalized to some, but make those situations public in a way that can't be ignored. So your, your story, your life story, and uh, Corey and Kevin and Raymond and Antoine, thank you, um, was public in, in 1989 um, in a different way than it's public now. Yeah. So how, how does that feel? It feels great because you, you, you have your humanity restored. When I was in prison, we would write letters back to the world, as we would call it, and we would often begin the letters, may this letter reach you physically, mentally, and spiritually okay. And when I got to the adult facilities, one of the elders who happened to be a original member of the Black Panther Party and an original member of the Black Liberation Army, he says to me, um, you should add a, a fourth dynamic to that. And he said, you should say psychosocial as well. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, it's the, it's the idea that you're seen as valuable in society, and so therefore society values you, and they want you to be there, they want you to participate, they embrace you as a, as a member of society. And of course, we see now that that's, that dynamic doesn't happen often. As a matter of fact, a lot of young people in particular are told that they're not worth anything. And therefore, they begin to produce worthlessness. They begin to act out what is assumed of them, and they believe it themselves, you know, when they're, in fact, worth everything, you know. Um, the the re-embrace of a society that once saw us as pariahs is welcoming. But the great thing about being in this new, so to speak, social space, right? So Kevin's social media, we, I told him recently, I said, look, you gotta unlock. Like all of us were private, sort of. And I said, Kevin, you gotta unlock your social media. And he said, no, I'm good, you know, it's okay. I got, he said like, I got, uh, I got, wow, I got 5,000 people following me now. I said, Kevin, I, I'm sure that as you see in your request, it keeps saying 99 plus. And I said, I swear I've been clicking, you know, confirm, 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 all throughout Instagram. And I keep seeing 99 plus. And then finally I just said, well, let me just unlock it because what, why do I keep seeing 99 plus? Every time I refresh it, what's going on? My Instagram grew from, me having about 7,000 followers that I was following, and 7,000 followers following me, to over 300,000 followers. Corey's Instagram went from maybe about 300 people following him to over a half a million. Raymond Santana, same thing, over 300,000. When, when Kevin unlocked his social media, last I checked, he was over, I think it was either right at or over 100,000. And one of the things that I found out was that the, this, the ability to use a platform in a responsible way is what people want. And so 
I'm very, uh, I, I share a lot of stuff, but I don't share a lot of stuff. I got like over 100,000 photos on my phone, for instance. Just because I'm kind of always documenting things and thinking about things and trying to figure out other stuff. And then also I take pictures of where I'm at just so that I can remind myself of this journey. And then you know, also wanting to maybe put something together at some future moment for my 10 children. Yeah, you like how I asserted that 10, yeah, 10 children ten, piece? 10 kids. <laughs> I got to talk to you about why 10 kids. You know, but, so but I got five. Like, <laughs> double that. Uh. What I tell you, but it's, a, but it's a great thing to realize that the beauty of what you have is like I, I found out that people are not really as interested in, in meeting you, in seeing you. They're really interested in connecting with what you are bringing to the world. That specialness that was placed in you. You know, this, this understanding that you have the ability and should be living a full life as opposed to a shrinking life, a life that you're hiding in plain sight. You Can, know. Do you have a way of separating the people from the system? Like, were there good people you met? Yes. As as a matter of fact, I, I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to come with come up with an example, mm -hmm. um, because often we don't see those examples. I think, as we look in in, in television or, or in social media, we often find the magnification of the bad, yeah. and the assumption is that this is all bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's almost like a a, a scary thing to be in New York City and to see the side of a cop car that says, to serve and protect. You say, wow, okay, that's, that's actually a good thing. And then it says, courtesy, professionalism, and respect. I'm like, wow, I don't want to be treated courteously and with professionalism, and most certainly I want to be treated with respect. You know, um, but if your name is Eric Gardner, you don't even get the first words off the cop car. They don't even give you CPR, so. Yeah, last night we were walking courtesy, professionalism, and respect, CPR. Yeah, CPR. Last night we were uh, walking downtown and we saw a Minneapolis cop car. And you read the side of the cop car. Like, I, I mean, what did, what did it say? I think it said to, 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 protect, to, bo to protect with courage. Or to protect with compassion boldness, something or like something yeah, some, like that. It went. It went like a step above. I was like, "Wow, I like that." <laughs> I mean, it was. It was. It was inspiring. We got a rep here to protect with courage and. <laughs> Scratch that. She's not a rep. <laughs> <laughs> protect with courage and serve with honor. Protect with courage and serve with honor. I mean, I, I just in that moment when um, you read that. I was so clear on the different paths we took. Because I would never think to even, I, I don't even know if I noticed it. Mm. Like how, how different is that experience, right? Well, that's the wild thing about it. I think that that is the, for lack of a better term, miseducation of the Negro. And I say that because- You calling me miseducation? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I was growing up, my mother used to always say that she was raised in the Jim Crow South. And I was like, well, what is she talking about? Like, mom, we in New York. 
like the cops is walking around and I'm like, it, when she wasn't there, I would say, how you doing to the officers? You know what I'm saying? Because I saw them as integral parts of society that were needed, you know, especially if somebody's doing something wrong, you would say, you know, help and they would come. Um, but when I was with my mother, oftentimes if I waved my hand to an officer, she would pop my hand and tell me to put my hand down. And I didn't know what or why or any of that stuff, right? And so the, the, the education that my mother had experienced that she was trying to give to us by saying she was raised in the Jim Crow South, I had no knowledge of. She would tell me stories sometimes of having to, oh yeah. Yeah, just move your hand down. Oh, move your hand, okay. She would tell me stories sometimes about you know, being a child and having to uh, ride in the dark, ride home in the dark because they heard the Klan was out and they were looking to kill people. And to be on that side of always having to be on the defense is, is, is a problem, you know? And so the, in terms of meeting people who exemplify honorable, you know, examples. I met a lot. I met a lot during and after. I probably met a lot before, but it's just that my introduction to the world was through this unfortunate event that really was almost like terroristic to us. This- um, Can we talk about that for a second? I want, I want to talk about two things. One is your mother. Yes. And um, when I was watching it, and I think I may have even shared this with um, my sons, it was very interesting because um, I know I watched it, Malik watched it, um, this one right here. And he, um, the next day, I think he came over, and I have a 14-year-old, and he goes directly to him, and he's like, if the cops ever pick you up, you don't say a word. Mm. And the night before, I was talking, and I said, oh my God, I've always talked to my sons about what they do if they get pulled over, and I've never talked to them about what do they do if they get arrested. I never took it a step further. And I'm like, I wonder if there was anything that your parents could have said, the parents collectively, that would have changed the outcome. And I can't, I don't think that there would have been. Well, I'm gonna I'm I'm kind of come at this from a different angle. Okay. So my appellate attorney was the late, great Bill Kunstler. And I mention him because he is one of the greatest attorneys that America has ever seen, right? He was the Johnny Cochran of his day. He was perhaps maybe even more than that in some ways. But one day he came to me and said, you know, Yusuf, this, like we, we kept losing every single appeal. He died prior to me coming home. And I remember him saying to me, he said, Yusuf, this case is such a case. And he said this in the context of a, a predominantly Christian country. He said, this case is such a case that Jesus Christ himself couldn't have won it. And the beautiful thing about this, in terms of that, that thing that I read earlier about this case is a love story, we all heard statements like, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We all, we all kind of vicariously understand things through this lens of spirituality until it happens to us. And you asked me the question about had I met anyone that was positive, so to speak. Well, I met an officer in prison 
And this officer asked me a question that I was ignorant of at first. And that question was, that question was, who are you? And I said to him, I said, I'm, I'm Yusef Salam, the guy that they accused of raping the Central Park jogger, but I didn't do it, right? And then he looks at me and says, that's not what I asked you. I'm trying to, uh, he said, I've been watching you. You're not supposed to be here. Why are you here? Who are you? And this, this question changed the trajectory of my life. It changed it in so many ways because being raised in a spiritual family that we had a baby, we, instead, of baby, instead of having baby showers, we had a baby naming ceremony. So we didn't celebrate the birth of the coming of a child prior to that child being here. They did that afterwards, like in many African traditions. And I thought about this whole process. And my mother would always say to me, you, are, you have been blessed with many gifts. And you can choose whichever one you want to use. But your gifts are the way that you make your money, you know. And I'm diving back into meaning and, and, and who and all of this other stuff. And I've come to find out that I never knew what Yusuf meant. My mother actually used to say that I was, my name means that I was born with hair on my head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably because I had the flat top at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but I found out that Yusef means God will increase. I found out that my middle name, my first middle name, which is Idris, means the teacher. I found out that my second middle name, Fa'adil, is with justice. And of course, everyone knows that Salam means peace. So I'm in prison finding out for the first time that this process that our parents go through in order to find, just like the guy asked me, he said, who are you? Such a, such a simple question. Very succinctly, I answer it in my book of poetry. And I say, searching to find who has come. Searching to find who has come. A beautiful soul, a powerful one. Literally, every single one of us were born on purpose. And every single one of us were born with a purpose. And the only reason why we know this is because when our mother and father got together, it's the story of the birds and the bees, cleaned up so that we can talk about it in spaces uh, and it could be broadcast right. <laughs> without bleep, 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 bleep right? <laughs> but we were, all of us were one of over 400 million options, every single one of us. And we all swam the fastest. We could have been a different option, but we came out. And so therefore, we're here because we're supposed to be here. We were born in the families that we were supposed to be born in. We are experiencing the experience that we were supposed to experience. Couple that with this question, now I'm in the belly of the beast. I read a poem in prison, and the poem said, prison life in many ways can be likened to the womb. If the life inside becomes stillborn, the womb becomes the tomb. And reading that and understanding it and realizing that I'm not supposed to be here, I don't wanna be here, what am I supposed to do in here? Why me? And then I find out the meaning of my name. I find out 
that in some ways I was being shaped and formed in the belly of the beast in order to do something, in order to be something, in order to emerge at some point in the future fully capable and prepared, you know? And so I, I think often about my mom, like you asked me, you said, well, in terms of my mother, I think about who she is. And if anybody has followed me on social media, a while ago I posted these photos of my mom. And it's when she was modeling, you know? And people were like, wow, she's beautiful, you know? And of course my mother has this presence that is undeniable. You know, and in these photos, it was like, who would have thought that our lives would have been, when I say our lives, like we were compensated, the five. The families were not. The families were destroyed. The spike wheels of justice came and mowed us all down. And in many ways, the families are in a worse prison than the prison that we are in. And so for my mother to become my rock, for my mother to tell me things like, you know, be still and listen, it'll be revealed. You know, I had no concrete understanding of that. It was all theory. And then you go through this and then you emerge out of the other side and you're able to, through the process, you're able to believe again, you're able to dream again. And by that I mean sometimes when, you're, when you, you keep getting dirt thrown on you, you begin to expect that. You kind of live in that, the filth of life. And you really don't believe that you're able to get out of that, you know. And then something happens. And you begin to see a different way and choose a different way and begin to emerge out of it when really is God lifting you up. It's you being presented in a way that magnifies something else that's not you. It's not you, mm. right? Because all of us have this, this thing inside of us. All of us have this, this uniqueness, this ability to turn up our light. So my, my mind is spinning. I don't know if you guys are spinning with me or not, but I'm, I'm trying to reconcile in my mind, right? Like, I just have to go back to the to the early part of this story where you're picked up on the street essentially with Corey. You're hauled off. They question you. I hear the five of you were questioned between 14 and 30 hours. Um, you're, you're pulled from home, you're pulled from school, you're pulled from your family, and you guys are teenagers. And here you're talking about this story of clarity and courage and, and hope in the midst of that. Um, and I, I, I understand that there was a, a trajectory that probably brought you there. What, what do you think, it, I mean just, I mean I don't even know what to ask. I don't even know how to ask this question. But I mean, you know, 30 hours, 14 to 30 hours, were you there by yourself? I was. And you know, what's interesting, like in the film, you, sh you, you have this, this scene where I'm there, I'm fighting them, and essentially I never made a written or videotaped confession. 
I was the only one that didn't do that. And you didn't do a, a verbal confession either? No. And the thing about it, though, is that in the scene, you see my mother kind of leading me out of there, right? Is that me? It's 11 o'clock somewhere. I was told that 11, 11 o'clock is the, is the power hour. That's it. We're about to power. <laughs> right? And the power hour is so that you can begin to post and illuminate the rest of the world with the positive light that you want to put into it. Um, so... <laughs> We're talking about your mother. Yeah. So, yeah. so my, my mom... My mom... So my mother was there. Like, literally, I had... The people who showed up, which is crazy, the people who showed up initially were powerful people. My big brother, I was a part of the Big Brothers and Big Sisters League of New York. My big brother was, and still is, like he's still my friend, was David Nocenti. He, in his title, was the assistant U.S. district attorney for the Eastern Region. He shows up. Hey, I'm here to see my little brother Yusuf Salam. They recognize him. They know exactly who he is. Elizabeth Letterer and Linda Fairstein are there. Elizabeth, I mean, Linda Fairstein and her team following her approaches him and says, Are you here in your official capacity? And he says, No, this is my, my friend, my, my little brother. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here for support, you know. Can I speak with him? And he said, well, if you're not here in your official capacity, you have to leave or we will have your job. So like this story is so, it has so many facets. Five hours wasn't enough to tell it all. But when you look at it, he's there. And he's, he then stays in the background and begins to do what he knows how to do best, and that's to document everything. What time is going on? How much is this? What's happening? How many people? Everything that's going on, he's documenting all of this. And then when my mother shows up, he tells her, you have to tell them. You gotta go, go. You know, like you, you cannot, she's, she's, she's afraid, but, full of courage, right? Yeah. And so courage is not the absence of fear, but the acknowledgement of it, and still standing up and doing what you have to do in spite of it. And she's acknowledging this, and she's shaking like a leaf, because now the, the stories that she had been telling us, she's experiencing it with her own children, right? And my mother goes and says, you don't have the right to speak to my son. I'm not giving you that right. And they kept telling her for hours, we're not speaking to your son. We're, we're trying to find a room for you all to meet. And when they finally found the room, that was that scene when they were, when she came in and led me out of there. I never left, like true, true story, I never left the precinct, even though I came back in the, in the film with new clothes on. I never left. We just had a conversation. She said, do not talk to them. I know they're in there trying to talk to you, trying to get you to, to say this and say that. Do not talk to them. They need you to be in cahoots with them in order for whatever they're trying to do to you 
to work. And that's something that, you know, we, we I, I, I didn't know. I didn't have that preconceived understanding of this is how you fight the system, that not only do you not speak, but you ask for an attorney. And in many ways, one of the things that we've been fighting for around the country, because these, these um, super predator laws that were introduced to the world were introduced as a result of the Central Park Jogger case. They started saying these people are becoming younger and younger as they're committing these crimes. We need to treat them as adults at younger ages. And when they found out we didn't do it, they didn't go back and reverse those laws. This same policing has been the process. Was, was Corey, Corey, so Corey was the oldest. Who was the youngest? Who was 14? I think, I think um, both Raymond and Kevin? Kevin were both 14. Were, yeah. were they there by themselves? They were. As a matter of fact, Kevin and um, Raymond were arrested that night. And this is, this is this, see, we, we are, we're actually experts. Okay. I'm saying we're experts yeah. because if we're not in law enforcement or any of that stuff, just as regular folk, we are experts. Because if we watch TV shows like CSI, NCIS, any of these other, any of those shows, we, be, we, we know things that we realize we may not necessarily know until it happens to us, right? And so we know that forensic science is an exact science. We know this because on TV they come in and they recreate crime scenes and they can say based on the splatter of blood, the assailant was left hand dominant and six feet. You know, just stuff that you'll be like, well, how did you get that from the, the splatter of blood? You know, but they have these, these ways of doing this thing. And it teaches us that in the series in, and in real life, they made Kevin not only confessed to this crime that he didn't commit, but to explain the mark on his face, they said, you, where did that mark came from? Like the cameras came on after he was being pushed and, and, and massaged into, formed into this confession. That's when the cameras came on. And so when the world got to see these confessions, they believed it. You know, you had everybody saying all kinds of stuff. The problem was that nothing that anyone was saying matched anything that the, that the system knew about the crime, nor did it match anything that anybody in this situation was saying. So, so you all didn't know each other for the most part. They're feeding the names. You guys like are Raymond says that. Raymond says, Raymond said, if they gave me 100 names, I would have put 100 names in my confession. The only reason why his name, I mean, his confession mentions the people who it mentions is because the rest of us hadn't been arrested yet. They took Kevin and Corey back to the scene of the crime the next day. As a matter of fact, there's a scene, like if you, if you I'm not sure if it's on uh, um, YouTube or anything like that, but it's most certainly in the Central Park Five film that Ken Burns produced. There's a scene where you see Kevin walking in Central Park. And it's not even described. It's just like he's in Central Park. Corey told me that they both went back to Central Park. And Corey's sneakers were in time. They, they took them back to the scene of the crime. Then they said to Corey, your sneakers are in time. 
And he said, oh, okay, bent down to tie his shoe. Because normally if a person of authority or anybody says your sneakers untied and you're not in trouble, you're like, this is just like how, how I like to wear my sneakers. You know? But the fact that he was in trouble, he bends down to tie his shoes. Another officer comes and tries to bump him into the scene of the crime. Now I'm saying all of that because of the, I'm trying to lay the foundation. We are more intelligent than what happened in the Central Park Jogger case. In the Central Park Jogger case, everybody that was involved began to believe this. As a matter of fact, the narrative shifted after we were found to be innocent to that this was the sixth man. There were seven, there were originally seven people that were arrested in the Central Park Jogger case. So for them to say this was the sixth man, it's like historically it's not even in the right context. So the confessions were inconsistent. There was no physical evidence. You guys were questioned without uh, legal representation or, or family. Well, well, we, so the important thing is that we were questioned without legal representation, without an advocate who knew the law. Because even in the case of Antron McCray, in the case of Raymond Santana, in the case of Kevin Richardson, not in the case of Corey Wise, because he was 16, but in all of those cases, you have the family members on videotape while this false, while this false confession is happening. In Antron's case, I mean, which is one of the most heartbreaking of all, you know, his father is in there forcing him, plead, really he was pleading with him because in his mind, he said this is what they could do to us, but he probably was thinking about the worst. He said, at least my son will be alive. But he said, they can do this, they can do that, they will kill us forcing his son to say something that he didn't do, further causing devastating ripples in his son's future that he is experiencing today. There's so much heartbreak in this story, but I have to tell you, watching, watching him, um, and I guess to your point around the family, the destruction of the family, it, it's so evident the destruction that has happened in that family, and um, really his inability to forgive. Yeah. Um, this is something that's not often talked about, which is reason why, the reason why I said they didn't compensate our families. Yeah. Like we sued for $50 million each. That was $250 million that we sued for on the books. Our families sued for another hundred and something million dollars collectively. So for them to finally say, we are going to give you crumbs off the table, $41 million. Now that's a lot of money. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like bypassing that, you know. But in the context of money, that's not a lot of money, right? In the context of what we originally sued for, you got to remember they they took one third for legal fees, and then we divided up the rest. So for our families not to be made whole, when they were pulling at the fabric of the fiber of our families, leaving holes in that fabric. Those holes are still there. Those, that, those, pe those points of pain are still there. Even in us, it's still there. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the questions that I was asked when we, 
won the lawsuit, they said, what are you guys going to do next? And I said, well, in the book that I read, it says that surely after difficulty there is ease. Most surely there is ease after difficulty. But then it says, so when you are free from your immediate task, still labor hard. And a good friend of mine, C. Vernon Mason, Reverend C. Vernon Mason out of Abyssinian Baptist Church, he said, he said, my God, you brothers have financial immunity because they wanted you to go away. They wanted you to sit on a beach and sip my ties for the rest of your life. They wanted you to retire. But you have all inserted yourself in this struggle. And nobody, can, like, you can't be turned around because you're not tied to a job. You can do what it is that you need to do based on your story, you know. I'm sure that there are people that come and say, wow, 41 million, you got $7 million, mm. it, you're all good? I got 10 children. <laughs> I remember when I was working in healthcare. Man, I was working at New York Presbyterian Hospital and I got hired as a consultant. I had taught myself, for those that, that have seen the film, true story, I taught myself computers. I literally was picking up books, reading them and like, oh, that's how you fix an iPhone? Let me try it out. Fix my iPhone and it worked. It's like, wow, this is real. I could, I, could, I could really do this. But I learned how to deal with wireless networks in healthcare. And finally, they hired me as a permanent position in New York Presbyterian Hospital. And I worked in that permanent capacity for about seven years. Then I put my pink slip in because another hospital in New York City or the New York City area was hiring, saying that they wanted me to work and I was going to be over five hospitals. So I went out to North Shore LIJ, and I worked there. And then I put my pink slip in because we had won the lawsuit. But when I first got, <laughs> when I first got hired at North Shore LIJ, they asked me, how much money do you need? I had never heard that question before. And I never heard that question again. <laughs> But I swear, I was like calculating, okay, I need, I got 10 children, round the zero, add the one. <laughs> Man, I threw, I threw what I thought was a fictitious number out there. And they came back and said, we'll pay you 50 cents less. Mm. And I was like, wow, bought a car, had a reverse commute. I mean, it was great. But being in that position of, of being able to stand on your own and not have to rely on a check that's coming in every day because you want to be in the fight, because you want to share your story, because you want to be able to get your narrative back is important. Mm -hmm. you know. So in 2002, uh, Mateus Reyes, Reyes yeah. um, ran into Corey in jail. They had gotten into an altercation as I understand it. Comes back he now confesses. He goes and he begins to confess to the rape. And um, this is how you guys were ultimately exonerated. So some might say that Mateus had more compassion for you than the system and its players had for you. True. By the way, we got to remember, Corey, in, this, in, in one of those scenes, they come to get Corey for parole. And, and they, said, they said, Corey, yeah. it's time for parole. He said, I'm not going. He said, you're not going? He said, uh, 
if they don't want to hear my truth, I don't want to waste my time. I mean, this is a walking miracle. Yeah, Corey. Corey is a special piece of this puzzle. He is the ace in the hole. He is the, they will swear you were cheating at the card game. He's that card. You yeah. see what I'm saying? But, Corey, but, can I just add yes. this too? Because when, when I think I was watching um, Ken Burns' uh, documentary, The Central Park Five, which is very good, and Corey is sitting there as a 16-year-old, and he's, and he's at trial, and they're showing him in mm -hmm. trial. And they put up his video. And he's like, and he's looking at it, and he goes, I, I just can't, I can't believe they're using me against me. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. They're using me against me. And just the way he said it, I mean, it, it just, it just kind of broke you. It's that level of technology. Like, even in the Miranda, right? They say, you have the right to remain silent. Yeah. And then they said, but you could talk to us. <laughs> but see, the, the next clause, and I'm saying clause, comes into play if you do not remain silent. They say, if you, you know, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And then they say, you have the right to an attorney. And then they say, but you know, only guilty people need attorneys. <laughs> you could talk to us. And I think that that's, that's part of the problem that you, 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 get, you find yourself in these, these uh, very dark spaces and they want this truth. They want their version of the truth to be the truth. Like it's more attractive for it to have been five young black and Latino men running down on a white woman. That was far more attractive than for the truth of the story to be what it was. Matthias Reyes, 13 years later, look at God. 13 is one of the most unlucky numbers in American history. Matter of fact, most floors, most buildings have, they have a 13th floor, but it's like 12 and a half, 14. It's just, we're just gonna skip that. You know, Friday the, Friday the 13th, you calling in and saying, oh, yeah, I, I'm feeling sick today, I can't come into work. And he uses that number to bring about the truth. Not in, a, not in like a, a little way. Like he, the, the part of the story that hasn't been told about Matias Reyes is that Matias Reyes not only confessed to the Central Park jogger rape, but before he was allowed to be heard, he had to confess to other crimes that were cold cases that he did and he alone did. He had a MO. And I mean, when we watch TV, it's like kind of cool, like DNA, MO, and if we really don't know what those words mean, we kind of just, that's part of the vernacular now, right? But he had a modus operandi. He had a way that he operated all the time, that if he turned off his mind, he would carry out things in the same way that he had always carried it out because it was a part of him. Like I cut my sandwiches a certain way because I like to have my, cut, my sandwiches cut that way. You know, I shake my milk up a certain way. I do this, I do that, you know. And, and Matias Reyes, not only does he tell what happened, everything he says is verifiable. I followed her, right? He, they had his DNA. Two, the officer that was in both cases had DNA. I followed the, the her. The officer that 
had the DNA, was investigating a case along with this case and had his DNA for both of them and never checked it. Never checked it in the Central Park Jogger case. Yeah. If you guys have questions, I guess I'll just say it out loud instead of just <laughs> <laughs> um, pass them around and I'll grab them. Yeah. Um, but I, I mentioned all of that because Matias Reyes, when he said, when he said that he raped the Central Park jogger, they said, well, okay, okay, how did you do it? And he said he followed her. And he said when she made that left on the 102nd Street Traverse, he struck her in the head with a tree branch. And he said, where did you strike her? And he showed them on a map where he struck her. And they knew that he was telling the truth because that's where they found the first drops of blood. And then they said, what did you do after that? He said, I looked around and I drug her off the path down into the woods. They had that photograph back in 1989 of a single drag mark that completely destroyed the, the whole idea that this was a gang rape. And then what did you do after that? He tied her up with her own jogging outfit. Now we began to understand Elizabeth Letterer saying, did anybody move the jogger? Did anybody tie the jogger up? Mm. And everybody's saying, what are you talking about? Yeah. Have, you t have you ever spoken to her? No. You know, the worst part about this story is that the Central Park jogger has been continuously victimized. She's been victimized once because she was raped. That's the ultimate, I mean, Violation. violating a woman in that way should there should not be a statute of limitation for rape, and there is. That statute should be demolished. It should be same, the same thing like murder. If any time you find out who did this, they should be able to punish, be punished for that crime. Mm -hmm. Matias Reyes can never be charged with raping a Central Park jogger mm -hmm. because, because the, the statute, statute of limitation yeah. is up. But the thing about it that is that they, he, they further went after he began to tell them about all of these things. Now they wanted to check his DNA. And they had it the whole time. And they had it the whole time. And I hate using the word DNA. I love using the word dioxyribonucleic acid. <laughs> <laughs> because see, I want people to know, like, if, if you just say it like that, it's like, what's that? Yeah. That's DNA. That's what freed us. That's how they knew we didn't do this. They knew, and see, this is the part. This is the, this is the technology that's so sick about this case. They knew we didn't do this from the beginning because the detectives who investigated this case were not brand new. They weren't neophytes. These were seasoned detectives. They knew their job. They had been on the job for 20 years just to be able to get into that elite position. And they dropped the ball. Has Corey ever shared in the moment that Matias I don't even know if they had a conversation or if he just went off and, and confessed somewhere. But has Corey ever shared what, what that conversation was like? He never knew that he confessed. The oh. same way that it happened in the film is the same way that it happened. Oh, he wow. bumps into him again and Corey, rec see the thing is Corey recognized him. But Corey, because they had that altercation, that mark that's on Corey's face came from Matias Reyes oh. back when they were in Rikers Island. So. When he saw him again, he was like, you know, he was like, you know, Matias said, you, 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 you wise, right? 
And so he was like, who's asking? They had the audacity to make the people believe Corey had Matias Reyes under gang pressure. Now check this out. They had the audacity to say Corey threatened Matias Reyes. And then they, 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 they created this plan where they were going to have him confess so that they could then split the money without realizing that all of Corey's records of his whole prison experience is public knowledge. Yeah. What, I don't, can you say more about the magic of Corey? <laughs> Absolutely. Can you just, can we just talk about Corey for a minute? Like what makes him so special? What makes Corey, him the ace? Corey was not supposed to be there, but he was there. Corey, I mean, even, even the way that he came, you know, I, I didn't like wrap my fingers and hands on, the, on the, the window where he was at in the chicken spot. He was at the chicken spot. But I saw him walking across the street back, to, back home and I, and I yelled out, I was like, yo, Polo, we about to go to the park. That was my nickname for him. You know, my, his nickname for me was Kane, you know. And so he was like, okay, let me go in the park with my boy. Like, I gotta, that's my boy. Like, I'm not gonna make, I'm not gonna let nothing happen to him. And Corey was the most intelligent of us all. Corey left the park almost immediately after he got in the park. So he didn't even see anything. Like, there were people that got assaulted. There were people that were ha harassed. All of those people who in, were involved in beating someone up in the park all went to jail. And part of the way that this story was shaped was that they're saying, oh, well, the, the reason why we know the Central Park Five, as they were known back then, didn't rape the Central Park jogger because they were across town beating some other folks up. This is, what was, this is kind of what, what came out. Every single person that was assaulted in Central Park came to the courthouse, every single one of them. And said it wasn't. They all were asked on the witness stand, do you see the person or persons who did this to you? They all looked around the courtroom and said it wasn't any of these guys. Mind you, that night, I was 6'2", I had a flat top, I had on a sky blue outfit with artwork on my pants. I mean, like, literally, people would have been like, it was that dude. I remember that dude right there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, true to form, the only way that I probably was involved in this case was because somebody got caught and was put under pressure, and they said, who was in the park with you? I don't know who was in the park. Well, can you describe them to me? There was a tall guy with a flat top. That was part of the popular culture back then. But then as you begin to go into the surrounding communities and start arresting and, and, and questioning everybody there, who's this tall guy with a flat top? Well, that sounds like that dude Kane. Well, where does Kane live in Schaumburg? They go to Schaumburg, they start trying to figure out, who's this dude Kane? Oh, you're talking about Yusuf. Yeah, he lives on the 21st floor. They go to the 21st floor and they're trying to talk to my brother to get him to come down to the precinct with them. This is, a, this is like policing at its worst. This mistake that they got caught with, the fullness of it can only be understood with understanding that 
because they arrested the wrong people, months later, the real perpetrator of the crime was left to commit more crime. He ultimately murdered his last victim, who was a young pregnant Latina woman. And the story is so heartbreaking. He comes into her home, brandishes a knife, and she says, and this is his words, he's retelling this on Channel 7, and he's retelling, I think he was talking to Cynthia McFadden, he said, she said, can you, she said, hold on, can you let me put my children in the next room? And he said, go ahead. She put her children in the next room and locked the door. She's pregnant, he then rapes her. And he used to give his victims a choice. He used to ask them, your eyes or your life? And he said, at this moment, I wasn't asking anymore. I didn't want anybody to identify me in a court of law. So I just this, stabbed her up. He stabbed her to death. You know, I mean, there's so much wrong with this story. And, and he's a major player in this um, that they would be making up evidence against you while they have evidence of this guy who had been going around terrorizing women before and for the 12 years or whatever it was after. Um, I, I can't imagine at all. And has, have their family sued? That's what I don't know. I mean, these children are now at least 30 years old. Hmm. Their mother is no longer here. The child that was in the mother's womb also died. It's horrible. I mean, Corey, Corey being in a place where he was hoping to come closer to his mother, to his family, to then be pushed further throughout the system, to really be lost in the system, to be found by the real perpetrator, to one day his mother finding him and calling the prison and saying, I don't know who you spoke to, but they freed you. That's, that's what happened. Wow. And so Corey, this, Corey is like this mythical person now, which is it's beautiful to see, but scary at the same time, you know, because he's literally like, you're going through some, some unimaginable hell, and you just show the Corey card, <laughs> and all the stuff just fades away. Wow. Like what, is, literally what is your relationship our, like with him? Our relationship is so tight. Like, we've always been friends. We've always been friends. Every time we get an opportunity to get together, we get together and have fun, you know. But he's such a, like he's not as verbal, like he doesn't need to speak, but when he speaks, it's, it's almost prophetic. And he's the only one of the five of you that went back to New York? Yes, yeah. Hmm. So we talked about every story has a villain. <laughs> Um, and this story probably has um, many, many villains. Um, and someone wants to know about, about Trump. <laughs> what would your personal impact statement be to him? Oh, wow. I've never. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that question. I have never <laughs> thought about that before. Wow. An impact statement. If you had to make an impact statement to him, what would it be? Wow. Uh, 
so the, I'm, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm not going to answer the question. I'm, my thoughts are coming together as I'm answering the question. That's what I should say. So I want, I want folks to understand that there was a great film out called The Matrix, written by a black woman. And in The Matrix, we can only understand part one by, by watching all the parts. In part three, or part the last, the last one, um, Neo finds out that he was not the only one. He finds out that there were many, so to speak, incarnations of him, right? The one that they were looking for. And in part one, he believes, he starts to believe. He starts to realize that he's got this power. He's turning up his light, right? And in, in, in my book of poetry, um, in the last paragraph of the first chapter, I say, this is like the first few, first last, first parts, I mean the last parts. It says, I wanted to share this work specifically because I wanted people to know that when you find yourself in so-called dark places, there's always a light somewhere in the darkness. And even if that light is inside you, you can illuminate your own darkness by shedding that light on the world. And so Neo, in part one, he's getting shot at and he's scared. He's running, trying to dodge the bullets and they say, wow, he moves like them. And then at the very last part, before it goes off, they shoot at him and he refuses. He catches the bullet, looks at it, puts it back, and says no. And they all fall. That film was so powerful, it, it sparked in every single one of us that we all are Neo. And so what I would say to Donald Trump is that the revolution will not be televised. And this is, this is a poem. <laughs> this is a poem. It's called The Revolution. It's very succinct. The revolution will not be televised. I can remember when that statement made me sad inside. Too young to be in it. Now I couldn't even see it. Why? Why couldn't the revolution be televised? The last poets, Gil Scott Heron, as I grew up, I began to see. They left theirs. And I, too, wanted to leave a mark on history, a man in half, and I wanted to bask in that task that set men free. But the revolution, our revolution, is where I knew I had to be. The revolution will not be televised. They didn't want to display the victory of those, quote, unquote, lesser men. The revolution will not be televised. Smile, I know because I am the revolution. Your um, spirit of, of forgiveness and grace is so apparent. How did you get there? How, how have you found the ability to, to move through this? God. Like literally, like if I, if I tried to do it on my own, I would not have been able to be successful. Yeah. But when I was in prison, I was in prison and I couldn't cry out to my mom to help me. I couldn't tell my mother, uh, can you make me um, the, the special remedy that you would make because my, I have a sore throat. I had to cry to God to try to fix it because we didn't get medical care like that. And 
I found out that in my way of life, which is Islam, they say that, you know, we should hold on to the rope of Allah. And I had nothing to hold on to but that rope. I had to turn my whole self to that. And it, in many ways, helped me, shaped me, formed me, guided me, and protected me. You know, so here I was in the belly of the beast. And in, in, in the same way that they threw Abraham, peace be upon him, in the fire, he invoked God as they were throwing him, throwing him in the fire. And God told the fire, be cool and safe. Like they threw me in prison. And I was able to invoke God. And God told the prison, be cool and safe. Every position, every single way and place that I looked at and turned, I was in a position of security. When I was in a youth facility, they wanted me to be their leader. And I was their leader for five years. When I aged out of the youth facility and got sent to the adult facility, those individuals said to me, wow, you, you, you've been studying. We want you to be the third person in charge. And I became the third person in charge of the community. And then just before I left, I was the second person in charge. Wow. You were able to get your high school diploma and your college degree in prison? Yes. Since then, it's my understanding that they no longer allow for, for people to get their um, degrees in prison. Is that, that is, is that accurate? Yes. Is that something that you've worked on to have? Like, how essential do you think that is, and one's is, ability to get their education? It is the absolute quintessential thing for even a criminal to realize. Malcolm X, in the autobiography of Malcolm X, he said something to the effect, those individuals who got educated never came back to prison because they realized they had more options than one. When they were struggling and, and trying to survive in a state of savagery, all they had was the one option that they knew about. I gotta go over there and rob the bank, or I gotta go over there and you know, run, push that old lady down and take her purse, or just, just stuff that was just savage. And then you realize through education, I don't gotta do that. You know, I mean, the beauty of what happened in prison to us is that we began to believe again. We began to believe because not only were we presented with the opportunity to go to college, but we excelled at it. We were on the dean's list, many of us. We were getting A's and A pluses. We were like, I really am smart, <laughs> you know? And, and, and I'm saying that because we, be, we began to believe, we began to say, oh, shucks, this works. And it's those feel-good moments that restores us. When you take that out, the, 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 um, the, destruction of the, the destruction of removing education from the prison industrial complex is not described many times in the fullness of this because part of the gains that were gotten through education even being allowed in the prison was because of the Attica riots. You know, and so for them to then years later say, okay, you know, we really what's going on is that we're at war. We continuously are at war. The, the founding documents of this country coupled with the 13th Amendment clearly states a very scary reality that they can turn you back into a slave for the punishment of a crime. Anybody can read that. Mm -hmm. 
But when black and brown folks read that, those words vibrate differently with us because they're talking about a stain on American history that really happened that they want us to forget about. They're talking about something that maybe some of us still have grandmothers and grandfathers if they're over 100 years old that were slaves. They're talking about a practice that continues that has morphed into the new Jim Crow that we experience now. Mm -hmm. They're trying to keep us, but they need us yeah. in order to be willing participants for yeah. this system to continue. Yeah, another great book is um, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. We'll have that on there too. So we're getting ready to go through a rapid round. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and some of these questions are a little heavy, right. but we're gonna, we gonna um, do a speed round. Okay. What advice do you give your, your kids or other um, young black uh, youth in society about how to survive in this climate? I definitely teach them, about, teach them about the Miranda card and what it means. Um, teach them about what's going on in society. Um, teach them about how to fight because it's not about being angry and upset and knowing your rights. As a matter of fact, many times they'll say, oh, one of those, and they'll turn the cameras off, right? Um, this happened all the time when I was younger when you know, we, we knew that there was corruption going on, but the beatings that we see on, on social media oftentimes is not new to folks who've lived a little bit. You know, and so I try to give them that education and also let them know that it's not about what happens to you, but it's about what you do inside, like what happens inside of you that matters, right? So you can take the lemons that life gave you and make lemonade, or you could take the lemons that life gave you and say, well, I got these lemons. I, I can't do nothing with this, you know? Um, racism is so rampant in this society. What ideas can you share about how to deal with white supremacy? White supremacy is also white male dominance. And the problem, of, the problem of white supremacy, white male dominance, is that we continuously are fighting the rocks of these issues. Like, this is an issue. As opposed to taking out the rock thrower. The rock thrower is really concerned with this war that has been going on since the beginning of time, and it's a war of good and evil. And so he's got all of us caught up in some ways thinking that this person is better than this person. That was the original argument. I'm better than you. And the reality is that we're all here, we're all human. You know, I've created this shirt that I sell on my website called the human shirt. And in the shirt is a star. And in the star is representative of all the families in the world by the colors. And it simply says human. And when I, print, when I first put this out, it was because of what was going on with the wall and people not being allowed into this country. And it was this video that I saw of a black man being deported on a plane. Very, very, very difficult to watch. And I said, no one is, hashtag, no one is illegal. You know? Now mind you, I created this when I was in prison. I created a lot of the works that what, I present. What, what you doing with a cell phone in prison? That's not what I <laughs> No, not that. Not that. Uh, like, I created this, these, these pieces of art. Oh, okay. You know, like, um, like, as a matter of fact, this is, this is a piece that I created. The necklace that I had on last yeah. night, that piece is another piece that I created. This, this lapel pin, the cufflinks, these are all pieces that I created. You know, 
Um, but I think that that's the part that's important, that we all, like literally, the future is made up of the kaleidoscope of the human family. Yeah. And so there's those individuals who happen to be former children of slave owners and who happen to be former children of slaves, that kaleidoscope, that kaleidoscope of that human family that wants to push forward into a positive future, we can do it. Mm -hmm. We have the power to fight. We have the, we have the power to win. And as, as was said by, I think, Asada Shakur, we must love each other and respect each other. We have nothing to lose but our, but our chains. The reality is that if we all decided tomorrow that this system is no more, the system would be no more. And it sounds easy, but the hardest thing is the unification of us as a people. Yeah, I think that got to one of, one of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talked about um, the misconduct that has happened. Um, what are your thoughts of the concept harmless error that have allowed for the courts to avoid overturning convictions? Should prosecutorial immunity be abolished? Absolutely. And I say that because people are people. People can be influenced. Nobody, nobody is above the law. I think one of the worst things about the Central Park Jago case is to hear Donald Trump say, the reason why I believe the Central Park Five are guilty is because the police had so much evidence against them. It's this notion, without saying it, that the police department is infallible, right? And that's a problem because then we see things like, um, I don't know if this is, uh, this is a photo that can be seen, but if you go to my social media, there's a picture that I posted. And I, I, I purposefully didn't read the comments on this photo, but this is a photo. I wish I had a bigger copy, a bigger uh, <laughs> screenshot of this. It's essentially a guy with, um, armed with assault weapons walking while the police are tackling a black, a black man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's the problem because why is that okay? Why is it okay for a Mike Brown to be murdered, but a Dylan Roof to be arrested and taken to dinner? Yeah, Burger King. Why is that okay? Yeah. And I mean, that's not just one. These are many examples. We see these things kind of play out over and over and over again. Do you think that the people that see it are the closest to this issue? Like, how do we keep these conversations going? Because I don't know, there's, there's many people that are just really tuning in. And there's some of us that even live in community that maybe don't understand the extent of what is happening. Um, you might see the situations, but the extent of what's happening in our, in our system. Do you think that we can reform it <laughs> I think the system was built the way that it was built and is working exactly the way that it was supposed to be working. And that's the problem. Like literally, you know, we were, we were discussing uh, last night very quickly and briefly the Kerner Report and how at the, uh, after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, they had began to do this study about where we are in America and found that we are in a divided America. This was 50 plus years ago. And we are in two Americas. One, when you are afforded all of the rights of a citizen. And so therefore, this notion of no taxation without representation 
begins to play a part. So you say, well, I'm being taxed, so therefore I should have representation. I should be able to participate. But then, of course, now we look at the, 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 um, the landscape, and overwhelmingly we have a huge population of our people who should be able to participate who are part of the disenfranchised. You know, and not because often of things that are right, you know, but because of things that are wrong in terms of what should have happened with them. Whereas there used to be a system of justice where you would go to the correctional facilities to, go to, to get a behavior corrected so that you can return to society and to be a participant in society. And now it's very punitive. Now we give you 99 years plus life or two life sentences plus 50 years. Stuff that just doesn't sound like... Correction. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know? What... So I know that... So we have to leave with some hope. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. So I know that you are um, on the board of the Innocence Project. And so I, I hear you on the system and whether or not we can transform it. And I, and I, I feel the energy. I feel the energy now across the country of people that are becoming more aware mm -hmm. of um, injustice um, as decimating, I will say, in many ways is what you all went through to some of the other things. There's work on bail and other things that are happening. But certainly, you must see some opportunity in the Innocence Project, although that is getting people that are already been in jail trying to get them out. But are you finding hope in, in anything that you can point uh, our listeners to? I think the, the, the thing that I want everyone to understand is that it is absolutely us. Like we can look at the system and try to figure out ways to correct it, to do this, to do that. But the best thing that I ever experienced in my career as a speaker was when the Central Park Five film came out with Ken Burns, a young woman stood up in the audience, about 13 years old, and said, I'm a cadet. I want to be a cop. And films like, films like um, Get Out hadn't, hadn't <laughs> come out yet. I was looking for my phone so I could maybe turn the flash on and <laughs> <laughs> spark her, so to speak. But I realized that I was talking to the future. It's not enough to just pass the baton. It's not enough to go into these positions and, and continue things as they were, right? And so I said to her that on the side of cop cars, throughout the nation, in some variation, are the words to serve and protect. And then in New York City, of course, you have the words courtesy, professionalism, and respect. And I said, my advice to you is that you do your job. Like knowing that we, at some point, like the older we get, the more mortal we realize we are. And we realize that there's going to be an accounting. We realize that we want to lead that dash in between our birth and our death. With a, with a nice fingerprint that we were here, a nice mark that we were here. You know, one of the officers who just recently uh, passed away in the Central Park Jogger case, Mike Sheehan, who was the one who had both cases, 
you know, they kept continuing to say that they are fighting uh, um, because we were guilty when we weren't. And the, the worst part about life is to have a legacy where it's proven that you are on the wrong side. So now the effects that you did to, to scrape, to get by, by hook or by crook, affects not only your legacy, but the legacy of your family. And so now an Elizabeth Letterer's ability to rise up the ladder of success and become a multi-million dollar author is pulled because she got pushed and risen because of the accolades that everybody thought she had. And I look at that oftentimes and I say to myself, man, I would hope that everything that you are doing at any moment in time, I was telling a, a, a friend the other day, I said I've been hesitant about you know, videotaping myself and putting out positive messages because I've, I've never done that. You know, this kind of camera shy experience. And after I had a conversation with her, she said, no, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for this kind of message. And I was like, wow, I got it. And for the first time ever, I was able to take out my own camera and give her this positive message that she can then share with her people. And I think that that's the thing. Like, we have this awesome opportunity as we begin to examine the issue to realize that we don't have to keep this. We can change this. We don't need to be in a, a, a system that is lawless, but we most certainly don't need a system that was created out of the slave codes. What can someone sitting in this room, what actions would you recommend that they take if they were interested in either learning more or doing more on, on criminal justice reform? I mean, to not be afraid to say something, to not be afraid to do something, to be courageous, definitely to join others who are doing the work, you know, because we don't have to recreate the wheel, so therefore the Innocence Projects of all around America, I ask everyone that if they have an opportunity, join in. If they know people who are going through trials and tribulations, seek help from them. You know? When you go to the Innocence Project website and you see all of the faces and the cases and you just read a couple, mm. you get a better sense of what, what is happening and what is possible. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to turn up our light. And what we does that to, mean? We have to be able to understand, just like I said before, that every one of us were born on purpose and with a purpose. And to know that and to believe that and to understand that is to realize that if we shrink, like, when I look at my case, I think about Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela is quoted to have said, to be angry and bitter is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. Now, I could be very angry. I could be very bitter. And nobody would ever say, they kind of be like, man, you know, y'all brought it on yourself, right? But when I heard the words of Dr. Maya Angelou, she gave us direction. She said, you should be angry, but you must not be bitter. Bitterness is like a cancer, it eats upon the host. It doesn't do anything to the object of its displeasure. 
So use that anger. So anger is, what, is, the, is the shift. Once you get angry at yourself, you say, man, I don't, I don't want this anymore in my life. And you begin to shift and change it. And she says, so use that anger. You write it. She said, you march it. You dance it. She said, you vote it. I'm going to say she said it three times. She said, you vote it. <laughs> she said, okay. you vote it. And then she said, you talk it. Never stop talking it. So we don't have to just go down without a fight. As a matter of fact, in, in, in a lot of my poems in my book of poetry are succinct because I want people's imagination to be able to f flesh out the thoughts. And in this, there's one poem in here where I say, um, everybody dies. It's called Live. It says, everybody dies, not everybody lives. My God, I have my soul to give. Imagine, imagine, and I don't know if we're at the end. Yeah. We're at the end, so may, I'm gonna say this. This is great. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, I, I heard this before, so I am not the author, and I'm not sure if the person who told me this is the author, but what I'll say is this. That dash in the middle of our lives is the most significant thing. It represents us being here. And so we should live full and die empty. We should never be afraid to do everything that comes to us, especially dreams and hopes and aspirations. And so imagine, if you will, being on your deathbed. And instead of being surrounded by your friends and your family praying for you and helping you to pass over into the next life, imagine being. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine, if you will, being surrounded by all of your hopes, by all of your dreams, by all of your aspirations. And they're looking at you. They are all looking at you. And they're, they're sad because they are dying with you. The most wealthiest place on this planet is not anywhere where you find diamonds and gold and oil. The most wealthiest place is in the graveyard. And so I always encourage people to live full and die empty. Live a full life, never live on a someday I'll do this life. Because I swear when I think about a Nipsey Hussle, and I mention him because he's maybe one of the most glaring examples of a person who was doing positive work. He probably woke up that morning, kissed his wife, hugged his children, and said, I'll see you later. And then they all witnessed him get murdered. Yeah. And so that, like, all of us are going to die. But not all of us fully live. We got to live full, die empty, and make it count. Mm -hmm. So we gotta we gotta live and leave it leave it all on the field as they say. Oh yeah. So you know we we've had a, a faithful conversation and um, this phrase of joy comes in the morning keeps mm. coming into my mind and when I think about the sadness and the turmoil and the destruction of family and the corruption in the system, I think you're um, for sure an example of joy coming in the morning. Mm. 
and that um, through your ability to not just survive, but to thrive, and not just to thrive, but to be committed to sharing your story in such an open way, to provide a window into something that's not pretty. You can't make something not pretty pretty, mm. right? Um, we can find places of, of grace and opportunity in the midst of most storms. And I appreciate you sharing that not everyone you encountered was horrible. Mm -hmm. I appreciate, as they say, calling a uh, spade a spade, is that what it is? Mm -hmm. You know, for the people that were, were bad in the story, the villains of the story, the people that made their careers off the story. For the, the guard at the prison who just simply asked, who are you? That in his day at work, just simply seeing someone can make a difference. Just asking a simple question in the midst of things. These are easy things to not walk by and ignore that feel like not big acts. I don't even know if he understood in that moment him asking you that question would be pivotal. That by policy, we have stripped an ability for people in prison to get their education. And in your sharing, you've shared with us the importance of, of getting an education, the importance of being able to, to see where you could go in life and having a choice between acting out in your degree or acting out of the violence or whatever brought you into that case. We've talked about big brother, big sister. We've talked about people in your life that came forward. We've talked about the Innocence Project. We've talked about a lot of things that include a lot of people that are doing really great work across our communities. And for those of you that are here today that have uh, an increased interest in um, learning more about what you might be able to do around criminal justice reform, stay tuned. We have a number of things that we'll be doing in the upcoming months around that at the Minneapolis Foundation. We're doing um, pretrial justice uh, summit in October where we're bringing in uh, James Foreman Jr. who wrote Locking Up Our Own um, and um, a few other people that have been doing some great grassroots work to get people out of jail that are just uh, there on low amounts of bail, $1,200 or less for nonviolent crimes. Um, there's lots to do to weigh in on and I hope that you continue to have this conversation. For those who raised your hand and haven't watched this uh, four-part series, I invite you to watch that and invite some people to your house and have a conversation about the system, not just the five young men that you'll watch portraying these gentlemen, but about the system that allowed for the story, the life story of these gentlemen to even exist, that we have to call into question some things and find where your purpose is, find what you want to do in your, in your dash. And so I just want us to give uh, Yusuf a great round of applause.